Hey, so prepare to gasp. I was reading my Bible this week. I know, I get in trouble every time I open this thing, and I, I, I came to the sudden realization that Jesus is all about relationships. He was, they were trying to trick him, and they asked him this question. So, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, well, you know, there are really two. And he said, the first one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, but the second one, it's close behind. He said, the second one is like it. And that's love your neighbor as yourself. So immediately we're struck with the concept that Jesus' whole idea of being Jesus to us is going to be done in the context of relationships. That there's no really other option for that. Beyond all of that, I noticed that Jesus always discipled people in the context of their relationship. I mean, almost always. You can hardly find an incident where Jesus in the gospel is dealing with one person at a time. You know, maybe Nicodemus, but the Bible says that Nicodemus even came to him late one night. He snuck into Jesus' presence because Jesus was not known for dealing with people one at a time. So Jesus' context, his whole paradigm for discipling was in the context of people's relationships with one another. And I... I just want to lay out the idea to you today because you all want to be disciples of Jesus. Yes, we want to be authentic followers of Jesus. We don't want to do church. We don't want to be religious. We want to be authentic followers of Jesus. And I want, I want you to notice this morning that Jesus disciples us, that his plan for discipling us is not one-on-one, but in the context of a relationship as part of the process. Last week, I started a series, a four-week series that we're calling Life Together. And it was my heart to show you last week, first of all, that God created us for relationships. That way in the beginning of the Bible, during the creation account, God said, I've designed you, I've made you, and here's something you should know. It's not good that a man should be alone. It's not good. It's not part of his plan for us. So we're created for relationships. And so if we want to live up to God's plan for us, we have to surrender to that reality that in spite of the fact that it's easier to do it alone, right? Because relationships are hard. Can we talk? Have you just noticed how screwed up everybody else is? Other than you, of course. It's hard. But Jesus said, the Lord said, the Bible says, that's how I created you. Today I'd like to take it a step further and I'd like, you to, I'd like to point out to you that Jesus had a small group. I want to talk to you about Jesus' small group. Other than Jesus' you know, announcement that this is one of the greatest commandments, loving one another, I don't think anything speaks more loudly than the fact that Jesus had a small group. Did you notice this? Have you been reading the Bible thing? Jesus lived in context with a small group. In fact, we actually discovered this week some rare footage of a home group meeting that Jesus held. Would you like to see it? Okay, it looks like this. Now watch the dynamic, the careful dynamic of Jesus' home group. It's so rich. It's so deep. Wait for it. You won't see that anywhere else. (laughs) This... This is rare footage. 
of one of Jesus' small group meetings. Can you imagine being in a home group with Jesus? Jesus did essentially no one-on-one discipling. He did it all in the context of relationships, of living life together. Like for us, take a few minutes this morning and concentrate on uh, making some observations of Jesus and his small group, Jesus, the way he discipled in the context of relationships. I have seven. Hang on. Here we go. Number one, Jesus, first of all, he called a small group of disciples. When he called, when he came to the world to do his thing, he called a small group of disciples. You might think that if his mission was to save the world from our sins, that Jesus would have played to the crowds. Jesus had no problem attracting crowds, and yet he called a small group that he principally wanted to work with. He, uh, he focused on them. In uh, Mark chapter 3, it says that he appointed 12. And some of these names you know pretty well, like Peter and John and these guys who ended up writing stuff. Others of them, not so much. I mean, how often do you hear about, about Nathaniel or Bartholomew or Thaddeus? How do you hear about these people? And Jesus, uh, Jesus didn't incite thousands in his ministry. Jesus didn't incite the crowds to start his re- revolution. Catch this. He could have. He had every opportunity to speak to the crowds, but he called a small group. He called us, and he, and he established for us his heart for how this thing's going to happen, how the discipleship is going to occur. It's not going to happen in mass, and it's not going to happen one-on-one. It's going to happen in the context of the relationships of people that we know. Now, I did the math on this, and I find this really fascinating, that Jesus essentially spent three years discipling 12 people, correct? Now, if those 12 people had spent three years discipling 12 people, how many would we have in six years? 12 times 12. 144. Did you know that if you do that, that in 27 years, if you keep repeating that process mathematically, in 27 years, we could reach the entire present population of the earth? Discipling in the context of relationships and repeating that process again and again. Even before Jesus made this official announcement that there were going to be 12, you'll notice that he was calling in clumps. If uh, you look at Mark chapter 1, it says that Jesus was walking along the Sea of Galilee by the Sea of Galilee and he saw two fishermen, Peter and Andrew. And he said, come and follow me. He called them together, his brothers. It said just a short while after this, he was walking along. He saw two more. And they were James and John. They were fishermen. They were brothers. So he first calls two sets of brothers, illustrating his commitment to discipling in the context of relationships. So first of all, I want you to understand that Jesus called a small group. And in doing so, he was saying something about his plan. Second, Jesus actually preferred his small group to the crowds. In Mark chapter 3, it says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. This sounds like a great opportunity, right? So Jesus does a little something, and then it says in verse 9, because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. A small boat. And you like this? Have a small boat. 
I'm not trying to get the whole group anywhere. I just want to get away with you guys. And he preferred his small group to the crowds. Jesus was consistently given the opportunity to minister to huge crowds, and he consistently showed that he'd rather be with the 12 than be a celebrity in front of thousands. And I think the reason for this becomes obvious, that Jesus' paradigm for discipleship is to do so in the context of face-to-face, heart-to-heart, life-to-life relationships, not in some kind of a large, anonymous crowd. Um, I like later on in Mark, or earlier actually in Mark, one of my favorite verses, as some of you know, is Mark chapter 1, verse 35, where it says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I love that. If you read before that, you see that Jesus had spent the night healing the sick, driving out demons, doing all kinds of stuff with the crowd. And then the night ended, and then it says very early in the morning, so he slept a bit, very early in the morning, Jesus left. I love this next part. His disciples come to him after they notice he's gone, they wake up, and he come, they, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. The crowd is waiting, here's our chance. And he goes, Jesus replied, yeah, let's go somewhere else. Let's get the heck out of Dodge. Let's go. I mean, how, how obvious is it? Jesus said, fantastic, great, good for them. It's you guys that I want to be with. Jesus preferred the small group to the crowd. Third, I want you to notice that Jesus thought of his, his small group as his family. I think that's worth noting. There's a place in Mark chapter 3 where Jesus' mother and brothers come, and they're saying, hey, Jesus, what are you doing and the crowd is sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. It says a crowd was sitting around him. But then he says, who are my mother and my brothers? He said, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him. So there was, there was the crowd around him, and then he looked at those seated in the circle right around him, the circle, the tight circle. And what does he say? Here are my mother and my brothers right here. This is my family. He who does the will of my my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Another thing I want you to notice about Jesus' small group is there were times when he would focus on a part of the group, kind of a subgroup. For the most part, Jesus seemed to deal with the group as a group, but uh, there were times when he focused on a subgroup. I can only imagine what it would have been like to be in Jesus' group, even as at one of the twelve. And you're sitting around, and he's asking these questions. And you know, he's asking the questions to the group, but his eyes are going to look at somebody, right? And so there was a time when he's sitting around, and he's going, hey, who, who are people saying that I am? And everybody's, it's home group. Oh, some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. Come back to life. Some say this. Some say that. And then he asked this compelling question. He says, and I, want, I just wonder who he was looking at when he said, but who do you say that I am? I mean, I wonder where his eyes were pointed. Peter offered an answer. Maybe he was looking at Peter. Because Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. So he worked with them as a group, but his eyes fell somewhere. And there were examples where Jesus would 
take a, a, just a few away on kind of a discipling adventure. My favorite example is in Mark chapter 9 where it says, After six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. Seems innocent enough, right? <laughs> Until Jesus is transfigured into this dazzling white appearance and then Moses and Elijah happen to show up. That's a big day. <laughs> That is a big day. That was so big that Peter just wanted to stay. He said, hey, can we put up some shelters here, some booths, so that we can all hang here? This is fantastic. And so there were times that, although Jesus dealt with the 12, there were times he'd focus it. There were times he'd focus it. But you really can't, you really can't make a case that it was alone. It was always still in the context of a few relationships wasn't always cool to be a subgroup with Jesus either. There was a time when James and, and John, they came to Jesus. They, they came around and they said, Hey, Lord, can we have some special seats in your kingdom? And uh, that didn't go well. Jesus said, Special seats? You know what it takes to, to do this? Do you know what's ahead of us? Can you drink the cup that I'm at? Can you do what I'm going to do to have a kingdom? Well, after the other ten heard about this, the Bible says that they were indignant. This is the, this is the seedbed of true discipleship. It's not all roses in your small group. If it's all roses, you're doing something wrong. You're not getting into real life. If you're not getting indignant every once in a while, you're not giving God the opportunity for profound discipleship. They were indignant. They came to him. So Jesus took this as a teaching moment. He called them together and he said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Must be the servant of all, he said. He said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and this, this profound truth came out of the mess of relationships in Jesus' small group. Some of you are stifling yourself in your discipleship process because of your resistance to relationships. You're holding yourself back, waiting for the thing to happen alone when Jesus' model, his whole model for discipleship is in the context of your relationships. Um... You know, so though Jesus never really spent much time, any time, one-on-one, he definitely worked with sometimes smaller parts of the whole. And I think this says a couple things. Number one, it means that it's not always going to be your turn. It's not always going to be your turn. That sometimes the Lord is working with someone else in your group or some subgroup. It's not always your turn. Don't take offense at that. It's not always your turn. Just be blessed by the fact that someone else is being touched by God. But the other thing I want to show you is that, that it's, it's good to function on a variety of, of levels of relationship. And at the core, our core relationship is our relationship with God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Before you have any other human relationship, we have to tend to our relationship with God. But then beyond that, I think we could call these, this next circle of people 
I call them uh, my intimates. People with whom I am intimate. And, you know, can we rescue the word intimate from the peril into which it has fallen in the English language in our culture, which is so sensual and so sexual? And, of course, there's a thing called sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife. But that's not all there is to intimacy. It's closeness. It's unguarded relationship. And it can be so much more than just, uh, you know, the husband and wife relationship is surely meant to be one, but it's, it's one specialized kind of intimate relationships. I hope, married people, you do enjoy intimacy in the best possible ways, in that way also. But I also hope that you haven't, haven't excluded yourself from intimate, close relationships, brother-to-brother, sister-to-sister relationships, unguarded relationships. I am so grateful For the few people that are in that circle with me, brothers with whom I can share anything and my place in their heart and mind doesn't change. You know, do you have that? Do you have that? Beyond uh, my intimates, I think uh, I call the next level the sojourners. People with whom we're traveling together, you know we have We have the same values. We may not know one another well, but we know we're on the same page with this thing, right? We're on the same page with the gospel of Jesus and the outpouring of the kingdom of God, the expression of the church in the world today. We're on the same page with this. And so we're sojourners. We're temporary residents of this planet. Our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. And we're walking through this, but we're walking through it together. And we may not have opportunity to have a heart-to-heart relationship, but we are connected by the Spirit, and we're sojourners. And I take great comfort, I take encouragement in that, just knowing that you guys are going to be here, and knowing that while we can't all know one another heart-to-heart, I take great encouragement in the fact that you guys, we're on the same, principally on the same page together, yes? I mean, just look around this room. These are your sojourners These are the people who are seeking the same things you're seeking. The next group I just call friends. I mean, these are people, you know, uh, maybe we don't share the same values. These are the friends of Jesus. These are just people in my world that I know their faces, and, you know, they may be a neighbor or they may be somebody at the Kroger, and I know them. And I know them. I don't know what their values are. We don't share our hearts. But I consider them friends. I consider them people that God has placed in my world for some purpose. And then beyond that, it's the world. And we have relationship with everybody in the world. I love this fact. I was so blown away as I was praying this morning by this idea. That right now, so many of you have relationship with some very, very poor person in a little village in India. Because you supported the work of drilling a well, fresh water well for them. And right now, right now in the evening in India, as the sun is just starting to get low, there's somebody going to one of those wells. They're grabbing a handle. They're pumping that thing. They don't know who you are. But somehow you know who they are. And you have relationship with them. I don't know if it ever crosses their mind, oh, I'm just so thankful that somebody in America did this for us. I don't know. Probably. But what's true is this. That's happening because you did that. And their babies are not dying of cholera and dehydration anymore. 
because you did that and you have relationship with them. You getting that? And we have a relationship with everybody in the world in some respect or another. I just want you to see that as Jesus worked with different groups in relationship, it's okay. And it's okay and it's important that you, you understand that these, these relationships are meant to be and are meant to feed your lives. Observation number five, Jesus always had his group covered. He covered his, his small group. Mark chapter four, uh, first I note, leaving the crowd behind. So there he is. He says, let's get out of here. So they get in a boat and they take off and it says a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Maybe you know this passage. What was Jesus doing? Taking a nap. I love that about Jesus. I'm a napper. Are there any other nappers? I just want to be like Jesus in every way, don't you? I, I, I'm just going to go be Jesus for an hour. <laughs> So Jesus, all this, is, all this drama is going on, and Jesus is, it says, asleep in the back of the boat on a cushion of all things. And, uh, and, of course, they go, and they're freaking out, and they're waking him and asking him, don't you care if we drown? And it says, he got up, he rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still, and the wind died down. And it was completely calm because Jesus covers his group. Jesus covers his group. Jesus has his group covered. And I think there's an, a, an amazing kind of power that comes to people who are authentically engaged in doing this kind of life together. There's an amazing kind of uh, covering that comes over authentic believers that is really exponentially greater than the kind of thing that we can experience while we're trying to walk it out on our own. There's just something very cool that God does. You know, when I see some people who struggle with sin in their life, and it's something that, that, they're, that they're trying to master and they can't, or it even has mastery over them. And so many times when they come to me with this problem, I ask them, are, are, are you in relationship with other brothers? Are you in relationship with other sisters? And they say, no. And I just think there's a connection between that. Because there is a power, there is a power, a spiritual chain-breaking power that becomes available to us when we live in this kind of life relationship together. When we learn to, to just be esteeming and forbearing with one another, there's a power. Number six, Jesus empowered his group to go out and do great things. There's something that happens in group life that is exponentially more powerful. As I said, Mark chapter 6, calling the 12, he sent them out two by two, gave them authority over evil spirits. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Jesus empowered them to go out and do great things. Even when he sent them out, how did he send them out? Two by two. In the context of relationship. You know that wherever there are two people doing, there, you have two different opinions. And so even in the context of let's go here, let's go there, there you're going to have to sort that out. And this is, this, this is the, the, the classroom of discipleship is in relationship. He shows us this over and over and over again. He says, if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. The context of relationship. And this power, this kingdom power, I'm so excited to tell you about some of this stuff next month, but this kingdom power is something that you're never going to develop alone, ever. God won't even trust us with it. If we had it alone, 
without the safety of other brothers and sisters around us, challenging us and calling us to truth, we'd mess it up. We'd think it was about us. But there's a power that comes when two brothers or two sisters come together in this level of authenticity. There's a power. There's a kingdom power that many are missing because they're trying to go it alone. They're, uh, they're disconnected. I was thinking about my relationship with my dear late friend, Pastor A. Stephen from India. And I, I got to thinking about all the things that I've been grieving this year since he died in May. And, you know, at the center of it is I am grieving the fact that we don't get to talk anymore. That's hard. That's really hard. Because we used to talk quite a bit. He would call me just as I was going to sleep at night. It was morning for him. And he would chuckle and say, Oh, good morning, brother. Hello, Pastor Stephen. And we would talk. And we would talk all the time. I think that as I was really grieving and thinking a little bit about what I miss, is there was a power that came in the context of our relationship together. I mean a kingdom authority, a spiritual power, a saving, delivering, healing power. And I got to thinking that clearly all of the greatest manifestations of the work of God in front of me, whether it was in India or in the United States, have always happened when I was with A. That if I had to list all the coolest things I've ever seen God do, it was when we were together. Because there's a power, there's an exponentially greater power that comes together. The Bible says how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. God blesses that. And the cool thing about it, as I was thinking about it, is it was never anything we planned. I mean, the relationship alone was so serendipitous that we ever even found each other living so far apart. But even the ministry we did, we never planned. We just showed up, and it happened. And both of us were always so surprised by it. You'd think after a while you'd get to expect it. But we were always so surprised. I remember one of the last times I was in India, I just preached at the Bangalore church, and we were doing tons of ministry afterwards. And I, I know I told you about this. I've got to tell you the rest of this. I, I'm sure I told you about this guy who came, and clearly he was demonized. And so just naturally, authentically, I just started in and started asking the Holy Spirit to use this moment to deliver this man from the demons that held him. And man, in the midst of it, it was on. And he started manifesting like full Bible gospel expression at one point, I thought we were going to be in physical trouble. He is trying to run through me, and he's a pretty big guy, especially, you know, in the culture of India. He's a pretty big guy. And I wasn't sure where I was going to have the strength to hold this guy back, but the, but the Lord of the universe gave that to me, held him back, stuck with it. It was very dramatic. And then when those demons went, man, that guy just became this limp rag. And this whole expression changed. I, now, I don't speak a word of Tamil. He didn't speak a word of English. So we're not, he's, this, isn't like, this isn't like the power of suggestion. He doesn't even know what I'm praying. 
completely, so all, anything that's happening is happening through an interpreter. And he just told me, I said, how do you feel now? And he just told me, he just, all the burdens of his life were lifted off. He felt like a free man. So that was kind of the thing that we saw. But the thing I want to tell you is the next day, I was in the car with A, and we're driving off to Lord knows where. And he gets a cell phone call, and it's frightening enough to drive in India as it is. Be a passenger. I mean, it's terrifying. The whole thing is terrifying. And he's talking on the phone while he's doing it. But I hear him talking. And I could tell he's very excited. And he's telling this guy something. And he's speaking in Tamil, so I don't know what he's saying. La, 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 la. And he's speaking away. And then I hear him say in the midst of this, blah, 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 John Wimber, blah, 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 blah. Now, many of you know that John Wimber was the man who f- was principally used by God to found the vineyard. And so when I heard my name, and then a little later, John Wimber, I knew what he was doing. He was telling this guy about the amazing thing that happened in his church yesterday when this guy was delivered of demonic spirits, and it was so on, and God was so there. And he was so excited to tell him. So when the guy was saying, well, who is this guy? And he was saying, probably saying vineyard or something like that, and trying to explain John Wimber so this guy would know who I am. But he was, my point is, he was so excited. This guy who lived his life for Jesus on the most radical level, was so excited because God had poured himself out, maybe for the thousandth time that he had seen, but it was so exciting. This is the power of the relationships that you're looking for. There's a power that comes when we'll allow ourselves to enter into these authentic relationships. Last thing I want to just tell you is Jesus called the overlooked. Did you notice this? In Mark, as he walked along Jesus, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, everybody starts complaining about him hanging out with tax collectors. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the wealthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And I saved this one for last because I want this to come as a profound encouragement to you, every one of you. I know that people are wired so differently. And there are some of you who, whether it's nature or nurture, I don't know, you're very confident and you just walk through thinking anybody would be lucky to have a relationship with you. Great. God bless you. Right? There are some people who are just like that. That's great. But for most of us, it's like, you know, I just stink at so much of life. I can't, I've messed this up so many times, I can't believe that anybody would really want to enter into that kind of relationship. I just can't believe that. I don't think I'm really relationship worthy. I think I'm too bruised. I don't think I could even do what you're talking about. And so you think that somehow all of this is for everybody but you. But Jesus, when he called this group, he didn't go and look for the young men who had just aced their SATs. He dove for the bottom of the pile. And he said, these are the ones that I... He said, I didn't even call those people. I just want to leave you with that encouragement. That being in company with Jesus is an invitation to everybody to be in Jesus' small group. But keep in mind, remember, that when you get called into this small group, the kinds of people he's calling to, not the cream of the crop. (laughs) Bottom of the pile. So when you start looking around your small group circle and go, man, these people are messed up. 
That's why there's a place for you. That's why there's a place for you. Jesus disciples us in the context of our relationships. Everybody's crying out, I want to be an authentic follower of Jesus. I want to be an authentic follower of Jesus. It's not going to happen in a vacuum. It's not going to happen alone. There are some people who go to small group, and yet they don't, in, they don't enter into a relationship. You sort of check off the box of my duty as a Christian. Enter in. Jesus disciples us in the context of our relationships. The church was birthed as a community. The church was not birthed for individuals. The church was birthed as a community. Church is one of those words that's singular and yet plural, like flock, herd. There's one herd, but you can't have a herd unless there are several cattle. Church is the same word. Church is singular, but it's plural. And we're birth, the Bible says there's one church. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one church. So you're birthed into that. So what am I supposed to do? First of all, surrender. Surrender to this. Okay, you made me. You made me for relationships. I surrender to the truth that I now see that the whole paradigm for discipleship is not sitting alone and studying. Ooh, it's good. Study to show yourself a workman approved. Good but being in authentic relationship with others. Surrender to that. Give it up. Quit fighting. I know it's easier to go it alone, but how well is that working out so far, really? Yeah. Number two, you need to be born again. If you haven't yet come to the place of knowing Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life, none of this matters. It's not going to make any sense. You've got to be born again. And third, you have to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're going to be if you're going to be in relationship with the likes of Dennis Drummond, you need the Holy Spirit. If you're going to be in these kind of relationships, I mean, A. Stephen and I, we differed on so many things, <laughs> so many things, and yet we were bound together by the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Father in heaven, we just bow before you now and ask for you to take these last few minutes of our time together to move in our hearts, to work among us, Lord. I hear you calling us into relationship, uh, into your small group. I hear this, Lord. I hear this more clearly than ever that you really mean for us to find you in the context of these people that you've blessed us with. And Lord, I know that some of the people that we meet are going to be like Peter and James and John and others are going to be like Judas. And some are kind of just sort of the middle, the Bartholomews, Lord. And uh, just, and I know that you're going to use us as those people to others. So God, would you just come in the closing time that we have together this morning and would you tell us what our next step is? Would you tell us what it is you mean for us to do in order to be responsive to the power of your word today? I thank you for every person here, Lord. And I thank you for the ones that freely enter into relationships. I thank you for the ones who have just experienced so much damage that they just can't seem to get themselves to do that. Would you meet every person here as we take some time to worship you and respond to you now in the name of Jesus. Amen.